Welcome to Blue Mountain Baptist Church Online. My name is Scott Knox. I'm pastor here at Blue Mountain Baptist Church in Big Baker City, Oregon. It's a blessing to have you with us. And this is Friday night. We're recording this. It'll be debuting Sunday, March 29th. So hopefully uh, the Lord blesses you on a great Sunday morning. have no idea where I'm going to be, but uh, it's a little odd, but at the same time a lot of fun because we get to dig into God's Word together for me on a Friday night and hopefully you wherever you're at. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. If you followed us at all, uh, you'll know that we kind of take a book of the Bible usually and go through it verse by verse. And this week we're focused on a passage that I've entitled, Led by the Spirit, or a Spirit-led life specifically. And in days like today, I can't imagine a more applicable topic to really be looking at, especially on a Sunday morning where you're isolated, home by yourself, much has probably been stripped from you. Uh, your work, your education, uh, you've got the kids there if you have kids, and not a lot going on, and wondering, all right, what do I do? And what is life maybe really about? So we're looking at Jesus' life, the very beginning of his ministry, and I'm going to set the stage with um, maybe just reading the entire passage that we're going to be covering, and then going back and hopefully giving you some images so you can begin, in your own mind at least, to see and picture of what's happening and, and what's going on. Let's begin in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. It says this. I'll be reading out of the ESV Bible. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So that's the stage, that's the setting, that's the theme that is continuing on from the earlier chapters in Luke. In the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord, again, second time here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And we'll break there. We'll continue next week on the second half of this story. But for this morning, let's just focus on beginning in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned. Where is he returning from? Jerusalem, in the power of the Spirit. So let's back up just a little bit and look at and, and think through what we had spoken about last week. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we were just covering really Luke chapter 3 and the beginning verses of Luke chapter 4. In that, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and specifically, the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So there's this, this statement of sonship, immediately followed by what seems to be an, somewhat of an odd genealogy that traces from Jesus all the way back to Adam. And Adam is referred to as the Son of God. So you begin to see this imagery as Jesus begins his ministry of Jesus being the second Adam or the last Adam. Jesus will do what Adam failed to do. 
Adam was created in the image of God to be an image bearer, and God gives him the command of going throughout the earth, having dominion, being a reflection of his glory as his image, and being fruitful and multiplying, obeying his word. Adam failed as the son of God, and that title is actually transferred in multiple cases throughout the Old Testament. The patriarchs, corporate Israel is referred to as the son of God. And then finally, Jesus comes on the scene and he begins his ministry to fulfill what Adam failed. But as he does this, he goes out and led by the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, last week we looked in the early verses of chapter 4, he confronts and overcomes Satan. He does exactly what Adam failed to do. As the faithful son of God, he takes God's word and combats all of the temptations that Adam failed. Adam was desirous of food. Adam was desirous of power and decision-making, wanting the knowledge of good and evil. And so Jesus faces Satan in the very same way, and yet taking God's word overcomes that, led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit. Today, in many cases, those phrases are used in a lot of crazy ways. And we're just simply going through Scripture here and looking at what does that really mean? How does Jesus model that? Well, that's Jesus, right? He's battling Satan in the wilderness, and there's some amazing uh, imagery there with Satan and some really spiritual things that are really hard to understand in some ways, but fairly simple. How does that apply to you? Well, here we just look at the very first steps of Jesus' ministry after that. Very normal, very real, and I believe very applicable to real life, hopefully in your situation. So let's break it down. He's coming back from Jerusalem in the power of the Holy Spirit, to Galilee. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you take your Bibles and you flip to the back of it, you'll see these maps. And in the maps, you'll see a, a little map of Israel. And there, you'll see this tiny little spot that says Jerusalem about midway down. About an inch to the, the above that is the Sea of Galilee and the area which we're talking about. But what does that really mean? Well, think about it like this. That area is approximately 100 miles give or take a few miles depending upon where he's at, about 100 miles. And so let me just simply ask you this. Have you ever taken a 100-mile walk lately? I don't know about you, but last uh, fall I, I took a hike and put about oh, 50 pounds, maybe 40 pounds of gear on my back, and I was just going 20 miles. And once I got there, spent the night, and we were kind of worried whether or not we had enough food and Really would I like to have more? And we're really measuring things out in grams. And it was pretty tough. I can't imagine what it would be like to go 100 miles. And, and you've heard me say this in the past. A lot of times we look at, at ancient peoples and think, well, they're not quite as smart and they're not quite as intelligent. And I've argued they're far more intelligent maybe and, and much more technologically advanced in a lot of cases. And I would argue a lot tougher. Can you imagine in Jesus' day? You never see in Scripture where he's like putting on this backpack 50 pounds of gear to go to Jerusalem or, or to go to Galilee. He's certainly not strapping on like the custom-made REI leather sandals just for walking. He just takes off, maybe a bag. That's about it. So I'm thinking he's a lot tougher. And let me give you um, some, a little bit of context here with some imagery. This first image is looking at the Sea of Galilee, and it's looking off to the hills that surround it. And some areas around the sea, it's not so hilly. Here, you're kind of looking toward the, towards the north. And if you're familiar with the history, recent history, history of Israel, there was a, a war fought over the Golan Heights. 
And the area that I'm, we're going to be looking at this morning is specifically that in the Golan Heights. It's this hilly area right to the north that you can actually look down and see at least the edge of the Sea of Galilee. This is the area surrounding um, get the sea known as the region of Galilee. The very next image you'll see is of a modern-day mock-up of an ancient Roman um, weapon of war. It was a catapult designed for siege warfare. And if you look at this image, down on the right-hand side at the very bottom, there's a little ridge line going out. And that ridge line is where a city called Gamla was founded years before. And why are we looking at this? Well, as we're thinking about and looking at this image, let's look a little closer at the next image to give you a close-up view. Looking down, you can see some rock walls, you can see some structures, and you can see this ridge line going out and steep sides on either side. Well, the text is talking about Jesus going and returning to this area, and he will be preaching in the surrounding country. Well, why is this particular place, Gamla, important? Well, let's go to the next image, and you'll see a close-up view looking down on what is a first-century synagogue. And when I say a first-century synagogue, I mean the only first-century synagogue in existence in the entire world. So of the synagogues that exist, being this is the one, um, it's the only place where Jesus, we know, could have preached. And let's look at a little bit closer here on the next image. You see some stone structures that are very small. These are the structures on each side of the synagogue. And in the text that we just read that we'll get to in just a moment, talked about unrolling some scrolls. Well, these are the rooms where they would keep the scrolls and do some studies and various things. So we have the, the rooms, and then we go to the next image where you walk into the synagogue and you see the, the stadium seating on the rocks and, and how it's arranged. And if you look at the image about two-thirds of the way in, there's just a line of rocks on the ground. That's where you would go up and read. And the interesting thing is, after you get done reading, unlike today or modern-day preaching, you would go back and sit. And from your seated position is where you would teach. And you would teach in almost this square circle, so to speak, within the synagogue. And then the final image, uh, today Nazareth is, just looks almost, it's kind of depressing. It looks kind of like a third-world uh, maybe village or small town. But outside of Nazareth, which is a little bit further from the Sea of Galilee towards the west, you have an ancient Roman city that was uh, incredible, and we've talked about that. Um, and as a matter of fact, many scholars believe that Jesus, when he was growing up, if he was uh, a carpenter, he would, he would probably sell his goods or work within this particular city. So that's the scene, that's the setting for uh, where this is occurring, where likely J um, Jesus, if he did preach in a synagogue, that could be the place uh, that you could point to where Jesus actually preached. So let's get back to the text here. He is returning to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues. Here the, the Greek really explains why the report went out after the statement. We looked in James on our sermon in healing. Oftentimes in Greek, the explanation for what is happening comes at the end rather than English like at the beginning or typically where we put it at the beginning. So a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues. Really simple. What is a spirit-led life? 
Jesus was teaching. He taught in their synagogues. Today, as you're sitting at home watching this, you no longer have the opportunity to gather together. But you do have the opportunity to teach and to be taught. Is that what is happening in your life, in the life of other believers at this very moment? One of the things that we see oftentimes when we come to church on Sundays, which we've taken for granted, is simply just this idea that someone's going to teach us. We go there, we receive teaching, and we leave. But as Jesus begins to lay this out, as he begins to, to begin to enter into a ministry, achieving what Adam failed to do, you see his teaching not just in synagogues, but as his disciples all day, every day, wherever they're at. So as a mother, as a father, as a son, what are you teaching? How are you teaching? Is it in a formal setting or, or do you have the ability to take God's word and simply teach as you're driving to the store, as you're mowing the lawn? Wherever you're at with your kids, whatever you're doing with your family, can you conversationally teach? Well, Jesus, led by the Spirit, is doing this very thing. He is going throughout all the surrounding country and teaching in their synagogues, and he's being glorified by all. One of the hilarious things that I heard this past week as everyone is locked up in their homes, they're trying to find stuff to do. And my question is, Jesus was glorified or extolled or praised for who he was and, and what he was teaching. What are you glorified for? Well, one of the individuals I was talking to this past week, they happened to take really a great deal of pride in their Christmas cards. And I'm thinking, Christmas in spring? And they're going, oh yeah, this is the greatest time. We've got all of our time on our hands. We can go out to these different sites. No one's around. And we can take our Christmas photos. Now, if you've ever received a Christmas card from me, you know about the best Christmas card you're going to get is if I happen to think about it around Thanksgiving as the store is putting out the best Christmas cards. And I might be able to get you something that's fairly decent and certainly not going to be a picture of me. And then in a worst case scenario, I forget about it. It's like mid-December, I'm rushing around, and you're getting a Christmas card from a preacher that has Santa Claus on it. It's very awkward. So anyway, a lot of people I've discovered take pride and glory in a lot of different things. What are you known for? What are you happy that people think of you as? Are you a great cook? Are you a great father? Are you great at your work? Are you considered a great mother? Uh, maybe you, you're known on your block as having the best yard. Well, all of that's good stuff, but do you need the Spirit for any of that? The question is this, what does it mean to have a life that is led by the Spirit? Well, the Spirit has to be involved. And the Spirit takes God's Word and applies it. And you're about to see as we read a little bit further, it's not just applying but what does the Spirit communicate through God's Word? There is a dramatic impact in people's lives. So he's being glorified by all. In verse 16 it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. That's tough. I don't know about how many people listening right now are really living where they've grown up. That doesn't happen very often these days. But quite frankly, you can really be unless you're just a really difficult individual that's in trouble with the law, you can really be about whoever you want to be 
where you've grown up, and you're not going to cause any controversy whatsoever. We just kind of live and let live. That's the way it is here in America. What's interesting is if you go to where you grew up, where people know you, and begin teaching or speaking something, making certain truth claims, all of a sudden, it's not just difficult that you grew up in that area and they know you. They'll begin to look and compare why is it you're different? It's a, it's a matter of timing, especially with Jesus. Because in Nazareth, surely at that point in time, it was a small community. People had heard about the miraculous birth of Jesus and all that went on. And maybe after a while, that became somewhat normal. The reality is, that's fine. It didn't affect their life. They could go on being who they wanted to be. But all of a sudden, Jesus approaches his 30s and he begins to proclaim something and they're wondering, why now? What is going on? And he says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up and read. Seemingly a very simple verse there. He went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and stood up and read. The question for you is simply this. As you're watching, or maybe when you go to church on a Sunday, when you have the opportunity, why do you go? Do you go to hear the Word of God read or spoken or teached? It's a really interesting perspective now that we can't come to church together and, and worship together like we normally do. Why do people go to church? Is it for the reading of God's Word? Well, for those that have walked away from maybe the Scriptures and believing in the Scriptures and inerrancy, what we've discovered is those groups long before this time that have walked away from the truthfulness and, and, and the, the foundation of Scripture, you'll often, maybe today, if you attend a, a mainline church, you'll hear poetry being read, you'll hear songs being sung, uh, maybe a skit or, or something along those lines. You'll certainly see, in some cases, a lot of ritual, a lot of doing, um, a lot of activity, but because they've walked away from Scripture... They don't read Scripture. It's surprising why people go to church. They don't necessarily always go to hear the Word of God proclaimed. Not only that, it says it was his custom when he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Do you realize synagogues are not commanded in Scripture? That is, that is not the law. You, you won't find a synagogue in the Old Testament. It arises in an unknown way during the dispersion. And so it was just simply Jesus' custom. He made a habit of gathering together on the Sabbath day to worship God. And long before the virus hit here, I would run into people, and it was not their custom to gather together. They actually like it better now. They wanted to be out in the woods by themselves. And I can certainly understand being out in God's creation and wanting to worship, but it was Jesus' custom to gather together. It was his habit. Hebrews says we shouldn't forsake gathering together. Now, obviously, there are times in our life where we can't, whether we're ill or maybe we're traveling, those sorts of things. But over the long run, Jesus made it his custom. He would read. In verse 17, what did he read? It says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. So there were attendants. They would go to those scroll rooms or a place where the scrolls were at. They would bring it out, set it before him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This comes out of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 in the first half of verse 2, but it comes out of the Greek translation of Isaiah. So if you're to turn your Bibles to Isaiah, it's a little bit different there. The Greek translation, or the Septuagint, was a translation that Jesus and the disciples quoted from often. And, and I say this often because people often ask me as a pastor, are translations, modern translations, okay? Well, absolutely. Jesus and the disciples use translations. You just want it as close to the original text as possible. So he's quoting Isaiah, and here's this incredible passage. It's a prophetic passage that was fulfilled in, in Isaiah's day. It was certainly fulfilled in a way, but if you understand prophecy, you understand it often has multiple fulfillments, and the people understood that. Not only did they understand it, but notice in verse 20 it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the tenant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why is that? Well, you need a little context here. So in their day, as I mentioned as we were looking at Gamla, and this, this Roman siege works was looking down on Gamla, in about 70 AD, Gamla was one of the last outposts in Israel to be destroyed. They sent about 12,000 Roman soldiers to destroy and kill about 5,000 Jewish holdouts, and another 3,000 or so they believe committed suicide. There was this rebellion during that day, and it continued after Jesus into the New Testament era. 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. So during that time, there had been this incredible rebellion that the Jews had been wanting to be set free. They'd been in captivity for a long time. Yes, they were released to come back into the land, but very quickly they're taken over and they're being ruled by Rome. And there's this constant desire for their own rule, a earthly kingdom. Many individuals during the intertestamental period of time between the Old Testament and New Testament had come and tried to, to raise up uh, crowds and and armies to rebel against Rome, and they'd been put down. So there's this incredible tension. So when Jesus reads these verses, it's not just these verses, but the meaning behind them. They're looking for this secondary, this, this final fulfillment even of Isaiah during their day. They're wanting freedom. They're wanting a king. But Jesus comes, and he brings a kingdom that they have no clue how to respond to. In some cases, it's, it's wonderful. In other cases, you'll see next week, not so good. But So let's look at the, the passage that he quotes a little closer here. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he's reading Isaiah, but Jesus is making this, this claim that seems to be almost implied because the people, again, were on edge. Their eyes were glued to him because he has anointed me. This is where we see what a spirit-filled life looks like in Isaiah's day and Jesus as he quotes it and as he commands his disciples, go and make disciples. What does that mean? Well, there's a message. We looked at what Jesus did in the wilderness, how he had success where Adam had failed. But as you go, you're proclaiming. You're obviously reflecting Jesus as an image as we're new creations in Christ. But what's our message? 
And what does it look like? Well, this is a little bit complicated. Let me try to simplify it. Imagine a triangle and turn it on its side. Or imagine a pyramid and turning it on its side. There is a type of literature or a, a piece within literature known as a chiasmus. It's where the text works out to a main point and works, it way, works its way back in, repeating the first couple points, but in just reverse order. Some people see that here. I would tend to agree with that as far as an interpretation. Let's take it one at a time. The first aspect in the middle of verse 18 says, to proclaim good news to the poor. So did Jesus go around making everyone rich, millionaires, billionaires? No. What was the good news and why the poor? Well, Jesus uh, in his Sermon on the Mount talks about those who are poor in spirit. The idea is simply this. The kingdom of God, the good news, it reaches poor and rich alike. No matter where you're at, no matter what circumstances you're in, whether you're locked up today because you're self-isolating because of the coronavirus, whether you've lost all your retirement due to the response to it, whatever the case, if you're poor, there's still good news. Good news means there is hope. Your hope as you lead a life by the Spirit. You have hope, not in this world, but in the world to come, and you can experience it now. Your joy and your hope is not set on the stock market. It's not set on how many people get sick or die with some virus. It's transcendent. So as Jesus is anointed with the Spirit, He's proclaiming a good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, this second proclaim, liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. Is, is anyone listening here a slave? I don't think so. But I bet you're a captive to a few things. What's your hobby sin that no one knows about? That you just go to, maybe when you're bored, maybe when you're frustrated with all the news, all the negativity, maybe fear, whatever the case is. What sin do you go to to make you happy? Is it eating? Is it stress, anxiety, worry, sadness? Is it short-tempered, anger, bitterness? It's amazing how we can kind of become captive to certain things that we're actually looking to for freedom. Very different perspective. This proclamation, liberty to the captives, they were looking for freedom from Rome. But as you'll see in the Gospels, this freedom, this liberty, is far beyond that. You can have peace. You can have freedom in the midst of complete chaos. And that is my hope. That's my wish for you sitting right now. If you're watching this during this period of time where we're self-isolating or maybe even months or weeks later, Wherever you're at, you can have freedom. And then notice this recovering of sight to the blind. Yes, Jesus did heal the blind, but when he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, we still had the blind. It's not as though he cured blindness forever. So what are we talking about here? Well, many times Jesus would refer to the Sadducees and the Pharisees as blind guides. When you're blind, 
you have no vision. You, you can't see the right way. But when you hear this proclamation of the good news, you have new sight. You have this understanding of what truth is. You have a vision now for how to live life. You can look in the midst of a, of a circumstance or a situation, much like we have right now, and rather than looking at everything that makes you angry or everything that makes you fearful, you can see the truth. You can see a way forward. When you're led by the Spirit, that's what you see. You can, you can see freedom. You can have hope. But when you're led by anger or if you're led by fear, that's all you see. And you're taken captive. You feel helpless. You feel poor. The inability to change your circumstances. And then he works his way back, this recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So we're back to freedom. Those who are oppressed. Jesus just spent the, the previous verses dealing with the oppression of Satan and the satanic schemes. And, and we looked last week in Ephesians, of we now have the ability to battle Satan, uh, the armor of God, we're to put it on. And, and, and Satan has been restrained, according to Revelation chapter 20, so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. Yes, there is still a battle going on, but we're no longer oppressed. We have freedom. Verse 19, this is probably one of the worst divisions as far as verses in the entire Bible. I don't know why they didn't keep this all together. But in verse 19, it begins, "...to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." This is probably a reference to the year of Jubilee uh, in the Old Testament. Once again, it's where the poor people who have been enslaved because of financial circumstances are finally set free. So we've worked our way from poor to to freedom, to, to vision, back to freedom, and finally back to hope. This is the proclamation of the good news. Someone who has or is leading a life led by the Spirit, a Spirit-led life, you have hope, you have freedom, and you have a vision. The simple question and application today is, is that you? I have to confess, it's not me if I'm watching the news. It's really not. It's certainly not me if I, if I look at my 401k. It's not me if, if I'm gathering around, and, and we try to commiserate, right? We, we gather together in groups, and we don't intend to be negative, but at 10 minutes into it, it's, it's all negative. But notice this. Jesus, in his, just his life, as he's going about the country, he's taking God's word, and he's teaching, and people are glorifying him. And as he's, he's teaching, he's, he's helping people to understand you can have freedom. You can have vision. You can have hope. I'm guilty of, of not doing that. Verse 20, it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What would he say? Verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I have to imagine you could hear a pin drop. That's like the shortest sermon 
in exposition of a text ever. We're done. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We're good. <laughs> I can't imagine the reaction. They have to be thinking, this, what? This has been fulfilled? I mean, because they obviously didn't become rich overnight. They didn't all of a sudden have a new king. Incredible statement. Jesus, at a minimum, is claiming a God-given anointing and mandate of proclamation and action. You see, a lot of times when we're teaching, everyone says, amen, that sounds good. That's a great message. Or, yeah, I agree with that. But when Jesus says this scripture has been fulfilled, all of a sudden it moves from just a, a simple reading in a synagogue to reality. And you have to ask yourself, what side of the fence am I on? Am I included in this? Do I get to participate in this? Or, or not only do I get to participate in it, but how does this work? It's just simply proclamation, proclaiming the Word of God. Jesus would fulfill the very role that Adam failed at as the Son of God perfectly. He ushers in the kingdom of God. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. At least initially. As you, if you're reading along with me, you'll see that verse 22 continues on to a not-so-good response. And this is my challenge to you today as you're thinking about, am I really leading a spirit-led life? Well, one of the challenges is, do I even want to do it? I mean, it sounds kind of hard. It sounds kind of dangerous. It sounds kind of wacky, to be quite frank. And not only that, but how do you lead a spirit-filled life sitting in front of the TV as you're bored at home? trying to entertain your kids while they're not in school and trying to come up with activities. It just, a spirit-filled life seems like it ought to be bigger. It seems like you ought to be doing stuff. And is it dangerous? Is it wacky? Well, here, at a very minimum, you can see a picture of being around someone who's leading this spirit-filled, led, anointed life has gracious words. Do you like being around people like that? I do. Unfortunately, uh, I don't always encourage people like I should. But gracious words. Think of a person in your life that's like that. They're, they're great to be around. So at a very minimum, I would hope that you would strive to, to have this spirit-led life just simply because you're not the grumpy person anymore. You're the person that everyone likes to be around. And I know maybe sometimes you like to, if, if you're thinking to yourself, well, people still like me and the way I am. Well, they love you, but I'm not sure they always like you. If you're the person that's always negative, if you're the person that's always angry, if you're the person that's short-tempered or has to have his own way or whatever the case may be, our family loves us and they put up with us, but maybe a few of our friends, but honestly, just think to yourself, do you like being around you? If you had to listen to your speech all day, would you like being around you? 
then this other aspect is, is incredible. Think of it as a mom. As you're talking to your kids, you can certainly tell them to clean the room, do their dishes. You can even homeschool them. You can do all this good stuff. But are you teaching them about the kingdom of God where they can have freedom, where they can have hope, where they can have a future vision and purpose in their life? As you're doing your activities in the yard, as you're cooking, as you, whatever the, the mundane stuff that is happening in everyone's home, can it be more than that? Can we really live this incredible spirit life? I believe we can because I've read the rest of the story. I've read the rest of the Gospels and so have you most likely. You see, Jesus, he doesn't create this incredible ministry where he's going to the Roman amphitheaters and and creating a crowd and, and entertaining people. He's just hanging out with fishermen and people and very simple, real life, life transformation of sinners who would come to him and he, and he sets them free from the bondage of their sin. People who have no hope all of a sudden have joy. They've been healed. A spirit-led life doesn't necessarily constitute a huge production. It's just a life that is transformed that when people look at you, they see Jesus as an image bearer of God. We are to not just reflect him, but we're to take his word and proclaim his message. Our words are gracious. They have this message of life. You can do that at home. You can do that when you go back to work. You can do that at school. And frankly, you can even do that at church. You see, the one thing that I've learned through all of this is how much ministry goes on behind the scenes that I get to miss, I don't get to miss, that I have missed out on. All the connections that every one of you has that I don't. I get to hear about a little bit, emails and phone calls. You do have the opportunity to impact the kingdom of God in an amazing way. Just through your family, your friends, and your work. Don't think of it as you have to be a disciple with Jesus walking around in, in Israel, or you have to be a pastor preaching. Just think, all the people in your life that I'll never get to talk to, do they see God? Do they hear God? and they interact with you. I hope and pray that they do. Thanks for watching this morning. If there's anything we can do, please let us know. Get a hold of us. God bless you. Have a great week.